Current events have motivated many people to prepare for future hardships. The form of these hardships could be debated and theorized until the day the zombies. Many people prepare for this unknown and unknowable event or events out of fear. A small percentage of people squirrel away food, supplies, and equipment and build bunkers under a mountain somewhere in the hopes that these preparations will keep them and their families from harm and or discomfort. A few of those individuals have even invested the time to develop skills and knowledge that will enable them to use these supplies effectively. And fewer still are the people that have developed the mindset, the fortitude, the stick-to-itiveness, and the faith to persevere in the presence of real adversity. Now, please do not misunderstand. Skills, supply, and equipment are very important and should not be overlooked. However, if placed in order of importance, mindset leads the charge. Developing and maintaining can and will be the difference between living and dying in a true survival situation. It's the difference between throwing in the towel and reaching the summit when faced with any real challenge in life. I once had the privilege of spending a month in the Louisiana swamp with nothing but the clothes on my back. No gear, no tarps, no tools, no nothing. That month was without a doubt the most difficult of my life. And there were moments of intensity such as raging tropical storms that threatened to erase our small foothold in the wetlands. These moments were exciting and frightening but were never the primary threat that could break my will and drive me to quit. It was the duration. Long, slow, hungry, uncomfortable, lethargic, pathetic days, and even longer nights attempted to break me. It was in my lowest moments that I relied on my faith and the best advice anyone could give me. I was on my way to Louisiana in a very crowded Atlanta International Airport waiting to go through security when I, only driven by divine intervention, bumped into Alan Kay. I mean, come on. How perfect is it that I just so happened to run into the winner of the first season of Alone as I was embark, about to embark upon my own adventure and learn new skills? As I was stuffing my face with a hamburger, and a hopeless attempt of weight gain. He bestowed upon me some real-life wisdom. He said to me, Live in the moment. You are here, and the time is now. Don't stress about the big picture and the seemingly endless amount of tasks and time ahead of you. Focus on the now. Ask yourself, what needs to be done right now? Then do that thing, whatever it may be and then move on to the next. It was this mindset, not the skills, the knowledge, and certainly not the gear that enabled me to complete the challenge. It was living one moment at a time until the day had passed, then doing it again and again and again. Not only was this month the most difficult and most miserable of my life, it was quite possibly the most rewarding. I know that I could have not been successful without a big quality 
of advice. My natural inclination to stay on the bright side of life and my faith gives me strength. I strongly support every individual's right to believe whatever they choose, just as I would expect and enjoy the same freedom. If you desire to worship the golden armadillo at the top of the ivory totem, that's your call. That tree won't be very fruitful. I digress. Personally speaking, I've made the conscious decision to believe in Jesus. And I've chosen to listen to that still small voice in my head that steers me in the right direction. I believe the small voice of God speaking to me. And it is a direct result of the decision to listen that allows me to take some risks. My faith gives me the courage to accept challenges. Challenges that make me aware of the reality of life and death. Challenges that most certainly will make me uncomfortable, cause pain, and at worst, kill me. This choice has allowed me to experience adventure. It's given me the opportunity to endure. Those experiences, in turn, have made me undeniably stronger physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And I live a relatively fearless life. I say relatively because clearly I'm not perfect. My faith will waver more often than I'd like to admit. But with God's help, a good man at my side, and a few slips, I will always manage to crawl my way back to the narrow, slippery, rock-covered, poison ivy red snake-infested path that few will find, and even fewer will have the courage to follow. My hope is that you will find value in this. My hope is that you will encourage and be motivated to become stronger physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I want you to crush the day. I want you to own it. And there's nothing that we cannot do. You can tell me I'm full of crap. You can tell me that golden armadillos are the only way to the promised land. It matters not, because I'll be busy trying not to trip. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Around the Campfire with Kate. Life is difficult for many people right now. And with almost all my shows, I try to give lessons on how to live much easier dear within your circle this is a live call-in show so if you want to talk to me give your opinion or just make a comment on the show feel free to call in through skype using public streaming network or if you're on one of the forums that gives the skype button then just click on it and it should ring you straight to the producer the video that you're about to watch is byron rogers giving advice on situational awareness it's my hope that you learn from professionals such as byron check it out Tactical positioning. Ladies and gentlemen, I talk a lot about shortcuts uh, to help you be more efficient and effective at uh, personal protection while you're out and about, right? So this personal protection, keeping yourself in this hyper-vigilant type of mindset can take a lot of bandwidth and can impact you socially and in a number of different ways when you're out and about. You don't want to ever be paranoid. The reality of um, this protection mindset is that it's a muscle. You get better, you get stronger at it. And the reality also is when you're implementing certain tools and when you're implementing certain strategies, um, it doesn't turn out to be paranoia. Actually, you're more comfortable when you're using these tools. You become more confident and more comfortable when you know you have a plan and a strategy. This plan is always changing as you change in the environment, right? Nonetheless, tactical positioning is one of those things where um, it helps you identify possible threats. So I don't presume to know any intention around me. 
is where I'm vulnerable. And so when I'm moving with people in my environment, and if I see that someone's moving, if I, if on a clock, if, if I see someone's in my 12 o'clock, uh, to my kind of my nine to three o'clock, this is a safe area for people to be in. But when they start creeping back beyond that nine o'clock, three o'clock area, um, this is when I start to question why they're back there, not their intentions, but the mere fact that they're back there makes them more significant because they're in a position where they can cause you more danger, grab your weapon, depend on how you're carrying it. They can uh, victimize you. So, you know, you always want to be paying attention to where people are. Um, and then once you see people are moving into an area that um, makes them a more significant threat, then you start to figure out like, all right, we start playing the chess game. This person's moving into my blind spot. I'm going to make sure they don't move into my blind spot. I'm not escalating. In fact, I'm being totally cool, totally congenial, and I'm very casually maneuvering myself. So, you know, maybe they don't have that tactical positioning on me, but I'm being very, I'm being very deliberate in making sure that they're aware that I'm making sure they're not gaining tactical positioning on me. I move into an elevator. Um, no one's standing behind me. I'm constantly placing my back against the least complicated terrain, i.e. the wall, the back corner of the elevator, keeping it so that I have tactical positioning on everyone in my environment at all times. So this is tactical positioning as it relates to social dynamics. And so if you are especially interacting with someone and you see that they maybe start to blade themselves to you um, and you see that they're maybe moving um, uh, in a diagonal or an oblique to you, these are little things that you can pay attention to with regards to tactical positioning. They can start giving you clues that maybe they do mean you harm. Um, and whether you can figure out whether they do or not, get them out of an advantageous position on you. Something to think about. And some people just aren't paying attention. Uh, so they just wander around in these areas and you, you give them a look and they're like, what? Other people are paying attention. So you make sure you give them a look and they're like, what's up? You know what I'm saying? Anyways, this is Byron Rogers with a quick tip on personal protection for Tactical Hive. Out. Boom. In the news today, Biden is signing executive orders about your guns. Did you know that according to the American Bar Association, no executive orders? No. Let me say this. No, executive orders are not law in and of themselves. They do carry weight of the law, but the president of the United States has no authority to either create a law, violate the law, or violate the Constitution. He has no authority to create law. And it's stated that executive orders <coughs> may carry weight, but only insofar as they are directed to a department or other government entity under the constitutional authority of the President of the United States, and that the orders themselves do not violate the Constitution itself or a local, state, or federal statute which lawfully derives its authority from the Constitution. So executive orders hold no legal weight unless we the people allow it. And one way the federal government is stealing our guns is through pawn shops. You heard me right. I've received numerous reports from all over the nation that people in dire straits go to pawn shops to pawn their guns. When they go to pay for the pawn, the pawn shop tells the people that there's another five-day hold on their guns. After the five days, the people get a letter from the FBI indicating that they cannot have their guns back for whatever excuse or reason that they want to give, such as the red flag laws on any given citizen. I know for a fact that this is happening 
not just from what people have been telling me, but this happened in the county where I live just within the last week. People, we need to be vigilant. We all need to learn how to adapt and overcome in these trying times. And we all need to help each other. Now I'm going to complete a two-part series of the surveillance detection tonight by Amy Tobin. As you listen to what I'm going to tell you, please practice. Please train. Please be smart in what you do in order to keep you and your family alive. Now, the difficulties of teaching surveillance detection. Since I occasionally get requests from people who want me to train them in surveillance detection, I thought it'd be a good idea to explain why I very rarely teach surveillance courses anymore or SD courses. I want to make it very clear that what follows are my own personal opinions about the SD marketplace. It stands to reason that others might also share some of these opinions, but I'm not trying to make any sweeping statements about experiences of others or about the industry as a whole. I'm in no way calling for anyone else to reduce or stop teaching SD. On the contrary, when people ask me about training, I'm very happy to refer them most of the time to some great organizations like ESI or AS Solution that provide SD training on a regular basis. All I'm trying to do is share my opinions about a side of the industry that doesn't usually get discussed. So let's talk about the training academy versus operations providers. People talk quite a bit about the differences between training and real world, op- real world operations. This usually centers around the subject of transitioning from training to field operations or about training academies who also provide field operations. But what you don't often hear about are the logistic difficulties that a field operations provider has to overcome in order to provide training services, especially in open enrollment situations. It's not a question of better or worse, but of different sets of logistical, operational, human resource and marketing requirements. If you're a field operations provider, it becomes difficult to plot out field locations for exercises, take field operators away from their shifts in order to give them sporadic surveillance role place schedules, deal with external trainee rather than internal employee safety and liability concerns, and sort through the mess of calls and emails from prospective trainees who ask for discounts, different training dates, free accommodation, specifically formatted diplomas, and on and on and on. Now, I don't mean to take down people's training requirements. It's very difficult for a protective services provider to give trainees what they've become accustomed to getting from training academies. All of these difficulties can absolutely be overcome if the organization has a sufficient amount of time, resources, and willingness to do so. And once again, I want to give a big tip of the hat to those who manage this on a regular basis. And besides the huge headaches, there's no denying that surveillance detection courses can also be a lot of fun. Staging elaborate field exercises where trainings have to go through 
bustling financial districts and world-famous landmarks while trying to detect multiple hostile role players who are surveilling a principal can be a trip. The problem is the real world of surveillance detection operations rarely look like that. Real-world surveillance detection operations can be extremely boring, stressful, and frustrating all at the same time. But these, unfortunately, aren't very good ingredients for a training product that's supposed to excite, motivate, and satisfy the people that you try to market and sell to. As long as your trainees are paying customers rather than your own employees, there's always going to be the temptation to satisfy them, even if it means you compromise realism. And this is the primary reason why most courses, including the ones that are marketed as realistic, misrepresent actual SD operations. SD courses can be very important in order to get the SD ball rolling, as in my case. But many of them can also instill some misconceptions and fail to equip trainees with some of the vital tools and coping mechanisms that are important for field operations. SD is also a complete paradigm changer especially for seasoned security professionals. This means that many operators with years of military, law enforcement, and high-level protection experience tend to do horribly when it comes to covert methodology and surveillance detection. The process of getting better at it is constructed of countless mistakes that you have to make. And I'm talking embarrassing mistakes that have to be pointed out to you. And I'm not excluding myself in this. I was quite terrible when I first started. It's a hard pill for many people to swallow. And the fact of the matter is that some people simply cannot succeed in a week-long SD course. This isn't a problem when the course is an internal one where trainees get a dose of harsh realism, no sugarcoating or participation diplomas. Trainees that do not do well simply do not make the cut and do not get to participate in the field operations. But when the trainees are paying customers, there's always going to be the temptation to soften things up and to massage field exercises into the manufacturing of success. So in case you're wondering, I have in fact tried giving paying trainees a harsh dose of field reality. And though they did not end up learning or they did end up learning quite a bit from it, the course as a training product that needs to satisfy paying customers was decidedly a bad one. I spent a few years teaching surveillance detection, first as an assistant with an Israeli instructor and later on my own. But as my operational SD experience grew, I increasingly lost my stomach for the SD training market. Speaking engagements and lecture classes are still things I occasionally do in addition to podcasting. But apart from very rare cases, the only SD trainings I've been providing for the last few years have been internal for the employees of my company who work with me in SD field operations. I do realize that this might just be the way the training industry works and that just because I lost my stomach for it, it doesn't necessarily mean there's anything wrong with it, okay? I'll let you, the listener, be the judge of that.
if that's the case, then I wish more power to all the training professionals who've managed to figure out what I have not. In any event, I just wanted to come clean and explain to all the good people listening who've been asking me for training why I so rarely offer it. Are we learning anything from any of these lessons? Well, we're going to move forward after this small break. Jeremy Hansen, the most explosive pro-American podcast on the planet. Pro-MAGA, pro-Trump, pro-conservative. Come join the resistance. Fight for what really matters in America. 5 p.m. Central on UJHLive.com, Spreaker, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or Megabook.com. Come join the resistance and fight for America. Unleash Jeremy Hansen. Come listen to the bloviating Zeppelin's Berserk Bombcat Saloon Radio Show Tuesday and Thursday nights at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Pacific for the best in late-night conservatarian wireless talk radio at shrmedia.com. Raised as a free-range child with dirt and freedom, BZ is broadcasting behind enemy lines in occupied California. Jump into our plush, sumptuous, palatial, and resplendent chat room at shrmedia.com. Now, with a 18% more umbrage and 20% more bulbosity than previous shows and with delicious Liberty additives. Remember, BZ realizes that with great beard comes great responsibility. No chinchillas were harmed, embarrassed, or the focus of any sarcasm whatsoever in the making of this ad. Here's a riddle for you. What do the California gold rush of the 1850s, secret societies, coded messages, mysterious 19th century flying machines and an early 20th century outside artist named Charles A.A. Delshaw all have in common The Secrets of Delshaw by Dennis Crenshaw and Pete Navarro. Go to www.secretsofdelshaw.com to learn more. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application, Mobile Talk Radio. Imagine having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. You'll be surprised how easy it is to use. So I think what's going on here is that Obama is banking on unemployment falling. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Talk Stream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man. Man of Steel and more. Superman homepage.com. PSN Radio. Realism Radio for the masses. Go. Do we know how to watch? And understand people. Well, back when I was living in Tokyo, I met an Israeli named Danny, who became my closest friend during my years in Japan. Before even reaching adulthood, 
Danny had become quite a successful entrepreneur. He was also very much in love with Asian art and culture. And this is what eventually brought him to Tokyo, where he had been living for a decade before I even arrived. A self-educated, self-made millionaire, Danny was a natural businessman, a world traveler, art history expert, connoisseur of fine foods and high-end spirits, and fluent speaker of five or six languages. A fascinating jet-setter Indiana Jones combination. He was and still is a real-life most interesting man in the world. Of the many things that Danny taught me, the most lasting and useful one was the art of people. How to read them. How to understand true intentions hiding behind nuanced expressions. How to read conscious and subconscious mannerisms and how to use this type of knowledge to gain various advantages. This type of outward focus has to start with inward self-reflection. In other words, part of understanding other people is understanding and controlling your own weaknesses, body language, nuanced expressions, and emotional state. We could go out and practice are people reading and people influencing skills, mostly in the areas of Tokyo's upscale neighborhoods with the snazzy cafes, restaurants, and clubs. It was like a wide open game of chess where you'd carefully position yourself and try to calculate a few steps ahead as you played along. We'd then evaluate how things went, discussing what worked and what didn't. During my first visit back to Israel, After being away for over a year, the full effect of what I had learned in Japan started to hit me. People might be people no matter where they live, but culture does matter when it comes to how people express themselves. When it comes to Japanese culture, especially in the high-end circles, people are very reserved and desires are conveyed very subtly, camouflaged behind layers of politeness. Israeli, by contrast, and Americans, in a different way, are somewhere on the opposite end of the spectrum. Having toiled for months getting used to reading the subtleties of Japanese behavior made me feel almost clairvoyant when I arrived in Israel. People seemed so childishly obvious, even when they were trying not to be. Everyone's emotional states, desires, motivations, and actions were just splayed out in plain sight. It felt voyeuristic just to look at someone. Little did I know at the time that this developed skill would become very useful in my professional future. Being able to read people, to deduce and induce various things about them, is extremely useful for protective and field intelligence operations. So let me give you a crash course and share some secrets of the trade. One of the things that never really sat right with me as a young security operator, and that I try to avoid repeating as a trainer today, was being told that when it comes to reading people, you should trust your instincts. Don't get me wrong. It is not a mistake to trust your instincts. But not everyone's instincts are that sharply developed 
and even among those with better instincts, there's always room for improvement. So in many cases, trust your instincts is not more than a cop-out line to avoid having to explain how you can develop observation and assessment skills. I am a firm believer in always trusting your instincts. But do not stop there. There's nothing magical or untouchable about instincts. There are perceptions that are caused by a blend of intakes you sense on a subliminal level. I believe that trusting my instincts is a, is something from the heavens, something from God to open my awareness. It's just that you're more conscious of the perception that you are in the subliminal causes, which is why an instinct feels more like a cause than an effect. Rather than treat your instincts as some magical sixth sense and actually get to the bottom of what's causing them by bringing these subtle sensory intakes out of their subliminal realm. You can sharpen your detection skills and develop even better instincts. For example, did you see someone who looks completely normal and non-conspicuous? Now ask yourself, what exactly about that person gave you that feeling? Did you see someone who struck you as oddly suspicious? Now ask yourself the same question. What exactly about that person gave you that feeling? Look for the underlying reasons behind those instincts because they're there. Start raising your consciousness to how and why people look and behave the way they do. Try to detect, assess, and understand as many details as you can and try to figure out the why factor behind those feelings that you get about those people. You're not always going to get it right. But with practice, you'll definitely get better and faster at it. Now, when it comes to gauging appearance, the factors we want to evaluate and profile are the ones people have chosen. The idea of profiling often gets a bad rap, but this is usually caused by profiling being applied to factors that are not chosen like race, age, and gender. The problem with racial profiling, for example, isn't only an ethical one, it's a logical one. It attempts, attempts to extrapolate conclusions about intent based on unchosen, unintentional features of a person that has, that has no control over that. And this type of profiling is not only problematic when it leads to false, positive assumptions usually against younger males and minority groups, but also, or I should say especially, when it leads to false negative assumptions, which can be very dangerous. The majority of what comprises a person's appearance is chosen from their hair down to their shoes and anything else they might be wearing, carrying, applying, or growing. Whoever coined the phrase, you cannot judge a book by its cover, must have been talking about books because there's a hell of a lot we can tell about people if we pay attention to the details and analyze them correctly. 
Nothing a person has on them is there randomly. What a person has chosen to wear or carry or apply can tell you two important things in regards to the situation at hand. One, where the person is from. That's their background, their tastes, and their resources. What kind of person owns, says, tactical boots? What kind of person carries an expensive Gucci handbag? Why would a person be carrying a large gym bag? There's reasons for these things. And they all have to do with prior choices. Number two, where's the person going? Why did they choose to wear, carry, or apply the thing that you just noticed before coming to the place at this time? What might that mean about your motivations? What, for instance, might be the difference in motivation between a person wearing military-style boots and a person wearing flip-flops? What might be the future intent of the person wearing the quintessential heavy jacket on a warm day? It's interesting to think where the person carrying the gym bag is coming from. But what's even more important is why they're now trying to bring it with them to this place at this time. What might be their intentions for the future be? Are there any guarantees you'll be able to figure out people's backgrounds and future intentions based solely on their chosen appearance? Of course not. But many suspicious-looking indicators turn out to be perfectly harmless, if somewhat weird. But the more you notice, the more you'll think about what you're seeing. And the more questions you ask about things, the better your chances of figuring them out there, there will be. This might sound like a drawn-out narrative, but with a bit of practice, most people can notice, think, ask, and conclude very quickly, almost if it were like, you know, instinct. And by the way, the gym bag scenario might sound ominous, as in the possibility the person might be carrying, trying to conceal a weapon or explosives. But more often than not, there's a perfectly non-hostile reason behind it. I've noticed that in high-threat evening events like in San Francisco, you're almost always going to encounter at least one person with a large gym bag. Even if it's a very dressy black tie or white tie event, the bag obviously gets checked out very well, which also means the person gets checked and questioned. But it almost always turns out that the person is simply coming, surprise, from the gym. People in San Francisco like going to the gym after work. And then they go to evening events and they don't want to leave their bag in the car if they even own a car. It's a perfectly harmless reason except for the fact that I have to go through their sweaty gym bag, but a chosen reason nonetheless. And one can tell you where the person is coming from and why they brought the thing in question to this place at this time. Just because... Something is harmless doesn't mean your observational skills and choice profiling does not apply. An important side note to appearance in cases where you're close enough to the person in question is scent. This might sound funny or even a bit creepy, but what you might be able to induce about people with gym bags if they smell a bit sweaty 
What can you assume if a person's hair is a bit wet and they smell of soap or shampoo? Try not to be overly weird about this. But notice how people smell when they go to work in the morning and how they smell after they've had a long day. Who's got poor hygiene? Who's been drinking or smoking? Who's using too much aftershave or perfume, possibly to mask some other type of odor? Smell is one of the sensory intakes that often sits on a subliminal level. Bring it out of there and start consciously noticing it. The idea that something just doesn't smell right is oftentimes quite literal. The more you notice, the better chances of detecting where people are coming from and what kind of choices that they've made before arriving. Now, behavioral profiling is a pretty deep subject, but for our purposes, we're not necessarily looking for micro-expressions or psychological evaluations. Instead, we're interested in the context of the situation, where we are, what's going on, and how people are behaving in relation to these factors. First of all, you won't be in a good position to evaluate body language until you're somewhat acquainted with the people ordinarily behave. Every environment is different in this regard. And even times of day make a difference. So it is important to establish a baseline for what normal or non-hostile behavior might look like. This is not always that clear-cut, and you're going to have to accept a pretty wide range of behaviors. But keep in mind that 99.999% of the people that you see are non-hostile and can therefore provide you with that baseline. Remember, we're not just looking at people in general. We are looking at how people behave at a specific place, time, and context, especially if there's security presence in the area. How are the people acting? Do their behaviors fall in line with those of most people at this place and time? Did one person nervously show up alone while most people seem cheerful as they show up in couples or groups? Were there people who showed up together and then they split up. What might be the reasons for their behaving like that? You need to ask these questions because the reasons are always there. In situations where access to a certain area is regulated, most people simply walk right up as if security isn't really a deterring factor to them because guess what? It isn't. A non-hostile individual is probably thinking about why they're going to be in a secured location rather than about having to go through a security check. And this will show in how they conduct themselves. People with hostile intent usually exhibit different kinds of behavior. Exactly what kind of that behavior is indicates a person has hostile intent or as otherwise trying to hide something. It's a bit tricky to pin down since different people exhibit different behavioral patterns. For example, 
you might see a person walking quickly, like tunnel visioned on their target as they head straight towards it. And conversely, it is not uncommon to see people walking very slowly, looking around nervously while stopping and starting their movement towards their target. The fact that nervous and hostile intent can manifest themselves in different ways might seem a bit confusing, but remember, you're not looking for a positive psychological profile here. All you need to determine is that something in the person's behavior is not normal. And that is the difference from the non-hostile baseline that you've established. Be it too fast or too slow, tunnel visioned, head on a swivel, or what have you, as soon as you realize this is not the way most people move and behave in the environment that you are watching, you've spotted something that needs a bit more attention. As complex and varied as human behavior might be, there's a number of traits that are quite universal. People under stress will almost always have higher levels of adrenaline in their bloodstream, which produces some predictable results. Adrenaline raises a person's blood pressure, which tends to make people hot and sometimes sweaty. Some people might get red in the face and red in the ears, while others might become pale. Either case can be bad news. High blood pressure makes people breathe faster, which dries up their mouths, causing them to swallow saliva awkwardly and generally making it harder for them to speak clearly. Try to notice if they are, they keep shifting their weight uncomfortably and notice what they're doing with their hands. Are they fidgeting their fingers, white knuckling or clasping? What about their eyes? Are they completely avoiding eye contact or overcompensating by maintaining too much eye contact? Once again, as soon as you realize that something doesn't quite fall in line with how most people are behaving in this type of situation, then you've spotted something that needs a bit more attention. One of the neat things about developing your observational skills is that you can practice observation and assessment anywhere, anytime. On the street, in a coffee shop, on the train, during a ball game. You can even do it right now if you want. Stop listening for a moment and look at what's on you. What kind of shoes are you wearing? And shoes, from my experience, can tell you quite a bit about a person. Do you have a wedding ring on your finger? Do you have an engagement ring on your finger? That tells you that there's someone close to you in your life. Is your cell phone tucked in a pocket or in a purse? Or is it somewhere else right now? What do your hands and fingernails look like and why? What kind of clothes are you wearing at the moment? What kind of watch, cell phone cover, or glasses do you have? Do you wear contacts? 
All of these things and many more result from choices that you've made before arriving to wherever you are right now. Even if you did not give it much conscious thought at the time, these prior choices reflect certain things about you and that other people are observing. And even if you received some items as a gift, your decision to have them on and wear them in this place and at this time says something about you. And other people are observing as well. It's basically a Sherlock Holmes type game of observation and inductive reasoning or what I like to call inductive observation. The more you play it, the faster and better you'll get at it. Keep pushing and testing yourself to see how quickly you can detect things, how many details you can detect in a short amount of time as possible, and whether your assessment about people's backgrounds and motivations are correct. Try playing the inductive observation game in situations where you actually get to talk to individuals that you've observed so you can find out if their your hypothesis about them is correct. But however, I recommend keeping this observational game to yourself because during most social or professional settings, some people could get a bit creeped out by it. And slowly but surely, you will get faster and better and more subtle at it. If your assessment about a person ends up being correct, awesome. File it in your memory and try to see if it applies to the other people in other situations. If your assessment is incorrect, that's also good. It means that you're trying things out and learning. Keep going. Keep learning. You will get better at it. Never forget to use your inductive observation skills on yourself before applying them to anyone else. Be conscious of your own appearance, of your own body language, and knowingly utilize these to outwardly project an image that's appropriate for your situation. This is your chance to make an impression and shape what you want people to think about you. So, Use it wisely. Everything about people's appearance and body language, everything they have on them, everything they do, everywhere they've been, and anywhere they're going, can tell you something about them. And the same principle applies to you as well. In this broadcast, as we've delved deeper into surveillance, surveillance detection, and special these factors can help you detect the intentions of others, particularly those with hostile intent, while masking your own intentions from them. Are you practicing? Are you learning your environment? Do you have what it takes to survive in most situations? These are just some things to think about. 
within your own mind and within your own family. Lately, I've heard something very important about freedom. In my last broadcast, we talked about freedom and that freedom is not free. But listen to this poem. Deep within the heart has always known that there was freedom. Somehow breathed into the very soul alive. The prisoner, the powerless, the saved have always known it. There's something that keeps reaching for the sky. Even life begins because a baby fights for freedom. And songs we love to sing have freedom's theme. Some have walked through fire and flood to find a place of freedom. And some faced hell itself for freedom's dream. God built freedom into every fiber of creation. And he meant for us to all be free and whole. When my Lord bought freedom with the blood of his redemption, his cross stamped pardon on my very soul. I'll sing it out with every breath. I will let the whole world hear it. This hallelujah anthem of the free that iron bars and heavy chains can ever hold us captive the sun has made us free and free indeed let freedom ring down through the ages from a hill called calvary let freedom ring where hearts know pain let freedom echo through the lonely streets where prisons have no key. You can be free and you can sing. Let freedom ring. This ends the broadcast for me tonight. Thank you all for joining me around the campfire with a special thank you to Amy Tobin for his insight into situational awareness then I someday hope to have him on the show. Remember, train hard, sorry, train hard, train smart to survive, thrive, and stay alive. This is Kate, signing off until next time. Mm-hmm.